in getting out the gospel, but the methodology that we teach you is tried and true, proven to get out the gospel and to help us to see a lot of people be born again. And so uh, we're going to talk about that tonight, but I want to just read some verses with you. Proverbs, Romans chapter 10, then I have another little lesson to get to that I'll give you another handout if we can get through this in the time I think we will. Let's look at Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, familiar verses, and you follow along as I read. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And let's pray. Lord, thank you for the truths here in this beautiful portion of scripture. We're grateful for your glorious word. And Lord, we've shown this to oh, thousands of people over the years, thousands and thousands, and have been blessed to see a lot of folks trust you. And I pray that our church and our members would um, be consumed and, and excited about the opportunity to share the gospel with lost people. And so give us insight tonight on the subjects that you have given for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now these are fabulous portions of scripture. I just, I love explaining these to lost people. And so just let me give you a quick explanation. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, that's important. Lord Jesus speaks of who he is. He is the Lord. He's the virgin born son of God. And so uh, it's, it's an exciting thing to teach people who Jesus Christ is. And then, and shalt believe in thy what? In thine heart. So it's not a head belief that saves. The devils believe and tremble, James chapter 2 tells us. It's a heart belief where we're putting our faith, our personal confidence in Christ to save us. And, and what are we trusting him with? What are we relying upon? And shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Uh, so that's kind of, uh, it's not excluding the death and burial, it's in including it. It's just a way to, if he raised from the dead, we're also realizing he died on the cross to pay for our sins, was buried, and then he rose from the dead. So this is inclusive of the entire gospel as outlined in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then it says, Thou shalt be saved or rescued from hell. Verse 10, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. Now in Romans chapter 3, 10, it says, There's none righteous, no, not one. So sinners are not righteous, but God has provided a way for us to become righteous, and that's by confessing the Lord Jesus, that we believe, we accept Him as He claims to be, the Son of God. And we put our heart faith in the death, burial, and resurrection that in our heart we believe unto righteousness. When we believe the gospel in our heart, we become righteous in the sight of God. 
as the new birth takes place. But then notice this. And with the mouth, confession is made unto or pointing to salvation. So we can't see salvation take place in the heart when someone is born again, but we can hear their words. And so the the Bible says that initially the evidence of someone getting saved is they tell you they got saved. Well, how do you know they meant it? All I know is they're telling me they got saved. The Bible says that is the confession pointing to the salvation that took place in the heart. Now look at verse 11. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. I like that. Uh, a lot of people apply this to, you know what, if you believe in Jesus, you shouldn't be ashamed of Jesus. I think that's true. I think other verses teach that. I think the, and, and, and it's not a bad application, but I think the interpretation of this verse is that if you trust Jesus, you're not going to be sorry you trusted Jesus. Right? That's the context of what he's talking about. If you call upon Jesus for salvation, you're not going to be ashamed. You're not going to say, oh, that didn't work, or oh, I shouldn't have done that. Because this is a prayer that God always answers. If you call on Christ with heart faith, asking him to save you, he will always answer that prayer. Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. No one will ever say, man, I wish I hadn't trusted Jesus. Amen. And look at verse 12. So God always answers that prayer. Why? Verse 12, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Folks, there's one way of salvation. The Jews get saved and the Greeks get saved the same exact way. And there's one Lord. A lot of people say, well, you get saved one way in the Old Testament, you get saved a different way in the New Testament. And Jews get saved a different way than, than the rest of us. No, the Bible very clearly says there's no difference. We all get saved the same way, and we all have one Lord. And that veil is broken in Christ Jesus, the epistles tell us. And then we see verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be what? Saved. Boy, I love that. I never get tired of those verses. Or whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And often, as we've taught our methodology, when I'm leading someone to put their faith in Christ, I'll have them put their name in there. And I'll say, for if kin shall call upon the name of the Lord, kin shall be saved. It's not doing a disservice to the Scripture, Whosoever includes everybody, it's just making it personal when we add someone's name. For if Paul shall call upon the name of the Lord, Paul shall be saved. Isn't that wonderful? We also use that for assurance. And so, uh, oftentimes when we're leading someone to Jesus, because we have Romans 10.13 here, we will uh, lead someone to pray what's called often the sinner's prayer. And you see in your handout here, uh, about we're going to talk for just a few minutes about the sinner's prayer. There's been a controversy over the years about whether or not to use the sinner's prayer. And we use it in our soul winning presentations because it's a powerful tool. And it's biblical. And it works. Uh, but I want to show this to you. We're going to learn why we use it and how to use it effectively. So what is the sinner's prayer? The sinner's prayer is simply a prayer in which a sinner acknowledges their guilt before God, 
confesses faith in the Savior and asks for forgiveness of their sin. And notice I didn't say sins. We're not talking about specific sins. We're talking about their sin, their sin debt. This is the prayer of salvation. Uh, and it's important that we understand a sinner's prayer doesn't contain power on its own. I often remind people that this is not like a verbal password. It's not like a Simon says, and you have to, God has to do it. It's, it's not like a magical incantation where if you say just the right words with the right intonation in the right way, that something magical happens. No, no. The sinner's prayer is simply the natural expression of a heart seeking salvation. Right? So we don't overcomplicate it, but some people make a, a fuss about it. This prayer can take many forms. Uh, sometimes uh, churches or groups will teach a standardized prayer for teaching purposes, but any group of words with saving faith behind them are sufficient. And I've given you an example of, of kind of the sinner's prayer that we use. Uh, we use uh, variations of similar sinner's prayer on the tracks that we produce and different things. But these usually, I say something like this when I'm leading someone to Jesus. And so uh, the sinner's prayer is used in response to Romans 10, 13. All right. Saving faith takes place in the heart. Can we all understand that? That's what the Bible says very clearly. Saving faith takes place in the heart. The sinner's prayer is the confession of the mouth that's the evidence of the unseen faith in the heart. Sometimes I get asked, well, preacher, what about mute people that can't talk? Can they get saved? Because they can't pray. Or preacher, what about deaf people? They can't, they can't pray out loud. Can they get saved? And Sometimes there's an overemphasis on, on what the sinner prayer does or a misunderstanding about what the sinner, sinner's prayer does. But of course, people can get saved who can't talk because prayer is not just with words. Prayer can take place in the heart. And this heart cry, this putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ uh, can, uh, is, is the moment of salvation. And so we use the sinner's prayer to help a sinner verbalize the faith in his heart and confess Christ. So someone can get saved without praying a verbal prayer, so why do we use it? Because it helps them have that moment of nailing their moment of salvation down, and they are simultaneously asking God to save them and confessing their faith in Christ at the same time. Does that make sense to you? Look, look at the just... Uh, example sinner's prayer we have here. So if I was leading someone to Jesus, I'd say, dear Jesus, they'd say, dear Jesus, and then they go on, I know I'm a sinner, and I can't go to heaven on my own, but I believe that you died on the cross to pay for my sin and rose again from the dead. I confess that I'm a sinner, and I don't want to go to hell. Please forgive me of all my sins and take me to heaven when I die. Now watch the confession. Right now, I am trusting you as my only hope for heaven. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Amen. So we have the request, and then we have the confession, uh, and it's a beautiful thing. Now, this is what the sinner's prayer is, and it's important to give the believer a clear moment when he put his faith in Christ. How many of you... Uh, you believe you were saved at some time whenever you were younger, but you're not really sure when that moment was. 
Anybody like that? A few, sure. Uh, you had the evidence of salvation. Uh, there was always something different about you. you always, your heart was always bent towards God, but you didn't really know when it happened. It could have been in a service here. It could have been in a service there. There's no doubt you're born again. You just can't point to that moment. Now, a young Christian who doesn't have any training causes a lot of, of uh, trepidation, a lot of confusion. But boy, having a moment when someone, when you can write down, oftentimes when I lead someone to the Lord, I'll, I'll, have, I'll write down in front of them, and I'll write down the date, and I'll write down the, the time, and I'll write down their name, and I'll give the track to them, and I'll say, I want you to always keep this, because this is the moment when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, ask Him to save you. And I say, before you go to bed tonight, I want you to reread this track, and I want you to look at the back and remember, man, I did that today. I'm saved. And see, already, the, the little bit of follow-up already getting that down into their heart. And so it's, a, it's an important moment to help people get assurance of salvation. Understand, if someone doesn't have the assurance of their salvation, they're not going to be productive for God. Right? You're not going to win people to Jesus, typically. You're not going you're, you're to be so concerned about getting yourself to heaven. You're not going to have confidence to tell others. And so assurance of salvation is important. Next. Is the sinner's prayer biblical? So this is a question that sometimes we get asked. Is a sinner's prayer biblical? And I would say to that, of course. Not only do we have the admonition in, and promise in Romans 10.13, there are two stark examples in the scripture that I want to show you. And you see there in your notes, Luke chapter 18, verses 19 through 14, uh, the Bible says, And he spake a parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others two men went up to the temple to pray the one a pharisee and the other a publican the pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself god i thank thee that i am not as other men are extortioners unjust adulterers or even as this publican you see what he's doing here he's he's praying such a proud prayer and he's even pointing to the other guy praying and saying i'm glad i'm not like that guy uh, and what a mess. And, and I'm so glad that God in his wisdom didn't make works the way to salvation because this is what this would produce. You know, I'm better than you. I'm closer to heaven than you. I'm not as bad as you. No, the ground's level at the cross. We all get to heaven the same way. And it's certainly not by this. All right, he goes on. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And those are all good things, but he was trusting those things to get him to heaven and, even worse, despising people who didn't do those things. But then look at the, the comparison Christ makes. And the publican, standing afar off, would not so much as lift his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And I love this story. So you hear the, the humble publican needed only to pray, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a lot shorter than the example prayer I had. But that's all it took in this man's case, because it was a natural expression of the saving faith that he had in his heart. And so, once again, there's no specific words. You don't have to say a specific thing. 
The prayer is simply the expression of a heart desiring and accepting salvation. All right, we see a similar story in Luke chapter 23. And if you read there, verses 39 through 43, And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. And so here you have Christ hanging on the cross and two thieves were hanging with him. Another gospel seems to tell us that in the beginning, both thieves were railing on Christ. But somewhere along the line, this second thief realized, hey, this guy's different than us. We deserve this. He doesn't. And he begins to yell at the other guy, telling him to stop making fun and and scoffing at Jesus. And so we read on. But the other man rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, what's the next word? Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. So we see the elements of salvation here. He, he owned his sin. He admitted his sin. He saw Jesus as Lord, not another thief, not another guy being crucified with us. This is the sinless Son of God. This is the Christ. He is Lord. He is everything he claims to be. He turned to him and said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And how sweet that Jesus is winning his last soul on the cross as he's dying for the sins of the world. And such a a beautiful thing. And today thou shalt be with me in paradise, Jesus said. So we find that the sinner's prayer is clearly biblical and that it's a, a normal response of a heart looking for salvation. Now, why do some criticize the the use of the sinner's prayer? We must first understand that most of the time the sinner's prayer is criticized by people that don't win souls, right? It's a good rule of thumb that you don't take soul-winning advice from people that don't win souls, (laughs) right? If you take their advice, you will become like them, and you will not win souls. There's a story in your notes about D.L. Moody, and he was, he was brusque sometimes when it came to sharing the gospel, and he had uh, wagons that would go around the city of Chicago, almost like a primitive bus ministry, picking up children, and he would approach people and speak to them brusquely. He was a very large man, and so a lady once came to him and said, uh, criticized him for his way of soul winning, and his reply was very humbly, I agree with you. I don't like it the way I do it either. Tell me, how do you do it? And she said, well, I don't do it. And D.L. Moody wisely said, well, I like the way I do it better than the way you don't do it. And so we very humbly say, we are just sinners saved by grace. We, we do not propose to be the greatest soul winners on earth or or to, to be the, the standard by which all others are judged. All we're doing is the best we can with the knowledge we have, but it's better for you to do it however you do it than to not do it at all. Amen? And so D.L. Moody showed his wisdom here. Now, some of these 
people who don't win souls, they're hyper-Calvinists. They don't believe in soul winning at all. They don't believe in the, the uh, sinner's prayer, of course, because they don't believe in soul winning. So a hyper-Calvinist takes the ideas of Calvinism. There's five points of Calvinism that I disagree with, with all of them uh, in particular. I think they are, some of them are worded close to the truth, but when you dive into them, uh, it's, it, it's not uh, what the Bible teaches. Sometimes people say, are you a Calvinist or an Arminius? And I say, I'm a Baptist. I'm, I'm a Bible believer. Uh, and so they try to put you in a hole. But a Calvinist basically believes that God has chosen some to be saved and some not to be saved. And we don't know, uh, but God's already made that choice. Nobody chooses to get saved. It's just, if you're chosen to get saved, God's going to save you. I talked to a guy one time who was a Calvinist church planner, and he had later learned the Bible and became an independent Baptist. And he had planted a church out in the Northwest, a Calvinist church plant, got, went on deputation, got funds, got a storefront, put out a sign. He's a Calvinist church planner. I said, well, what was, your, what was your evangelism plan? He said, there was none. He said, we would just open the doors and wait for God to send in the elect. And hyper-Calvinism goes so far to say, we don't need to go soul winning because it's not going to matter. God's going to save those who he's going to save. And God's not going to save those who he's not going to save. So there's really nothing for us to do. Of course, in contradiction to all of the Great Commission. I even had a hyper-Calvinist tell me one time, I realized I don't even need to pray. Because God's going to give it to me. He's already decided if he's going to give it to me or not give it to me. So it's not up to me. So if you take that to the nth degree, there's no purpose in anything because God's got it all figured out and we are just... Hyper-Calvinism is really a form of determinism, uh, just a determinism with a God figure rather than determinism, an atheistic determinism with, without God. And so uh, we don't want to take their advice. Now, there is a group of evangelicals that focus on belief in the gospel and the evidence of a changed life. So they won't technically lead someone to Christ, but they will tell them they need to be saved. So there's a popular uh, uh, evangelical uh, right now, very popular in some circles, and I heard him tell a story about soul winning, and he was up in Alaska somewhere and preaching a meeting, and a guy came to him and wanted to be saved, and so they sat down on the, the pew and began reading the scriptures, and he just had him read scriptures about salvation. And he looked up, and I don't get it. Well, read it again. I don't get it. Read it again. I think the story is like, I'll, I'll stay here with you all night until you get it. And just had him keep reading verses about believe in Jesus and believe in Jesus. And all of a sudden, the guy, after it seemed like, if I remember the story right, after a lengthy amount of time, the guy's like, I get it. I believe. And, well, praise God he believed, but why not have a gospel plan where you can lead someone to faith in Christ, offer the invitation, then if they need time, give them time. But it's not just, we, we can't have just this, we're telling people who don't know what faith is to just believe Jesus and everything will be okay. Just believe in Jesus and you can go to heaven. What does that mean? I'm glad that I had someone who knew the gospel that could take me down the Romans road, 
Tell me I was a sinner. Show me there's a penalty on my sin. Show me Christ paid for my sin, was died, buried, rose again, and gave me the invitation to trust him. That's what I needed. I'm, I'm so thick-headed, I might still be sitting on a pew in, in southern Indiana waiting, trying to get it, right? I'm glad for that someone won my soul, and uh, we need to be that in someone else's life. And, and also this, this methodology, they overlook the privilege of having confidence that we're going to heaven. And 1 John 5, 13, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. So God wants us to have confidence that we're going to heaven. All right? So why do some criticize the use of the sinner's prayer? Sometimes they're not soul winners. But there's another reason. Sometimes a sincere Christian criticizes the sinner's prayer because they've seen someone misuse it. They've either witnessed someone misuse it or they've heard about people misusing it. And we all have to understand that sometimes soul winners can be so zealous in trying to get people saved that they kind of rush over the gospel part helping people pray a prayer. But it's not the prayer that saves, is it? It's the faith behind the prayer that saves. So I think every sincere Christian who understands the Bible realizes that getting a bunch of people to pray faithless prayers is not the answer. Right? But just because some people have done it wrong doesn't mean that we get rid of God's method of the sinner's prayer. And if you use the methodology we use, we spend a lot of time in the beginning making sure someone knows they're a sinner. If, if they're not lost, they're not going to get saved. Making sure that they understand the penalty on sin. Making sure they understand the gospel. And as you're speaking to them, you're, kind of, you're looking for recognition. You're, you're watching their body language, looking in their eyes, looking for that understanding uh, and that they're following along with you. And, uh, and then if you follow our methodology... After you witness to them, you go back and review to make sure they understand the main points of salvation before you draw the net and lead them in the sinner's prayer. Does that make sense? So we have built in uh, precautions to make sure that we're not just running people through an assembly line because salvation takes place in the heart through saving faith, not in some special prayer uh, that people pray. All right? And so we've, we've got to be careful about that. There are two inherent dangers to using the sinner's prayer if you use it recklessly. All right, number one, religious people pray easily. And this is on page three. Religious people pray easily, especially here in New England. Uh, Roman Catholics will pray about anything. I mean, they'll, they'll just pray at the drop of a hat. And they'll pray, they'll pray to Jesus as soon as they'd pray to Mary, as soon as they'd pray for a saint. You'll get a kick out of this. My wife and I were watching, she likes watching this show where people bring things in, and it's very calm and, and relaxed, and people bring things in, and they just repair it for them, and then they send it home, and it's all nice and beautiful. And I fall asleep every time it's on. Uh, but she loves to watch it. And last night I was watching a few minutes with her uh, before I went to bed, and these people brought in this little statue and it was of saint fiacre i think is how you say it f-i-a-c-r-e saint fiacre and uh, he's a saint and the story goes his miracle because you have to have a miracle to be a saint one day he sat on a big stone and the stone got soft 
and left the indention of his backside in the stone. I'm not, I'm not lying to you. This is the story. And so St. Friacra is the patron saint of victims of hemorrhoids. I'm not lying to you. And so people from all over the world will go to his hometown where this stone is, and they will sit on the stone for healing if they have that issue. And apparently you can even do a preventive sitting to, to uh, uh, prevent issues in the future. And so I knew that they had a lot of patron saints, but I did not know that it was that detailed as we go forward. And so all this does is, now listen, these are, there are a lot of well-meaning, sincere people that that's all they know. And that's why they need Jesus, right? That's why we need to be teaching people about Christ. But they would, they'll just as soon pray to St. Fiacre as they will to Mary, as to Jesus, as to St. Christopher. You know, if you lose something, you got to pray to St. Christopher. All these different things. So we have to be careful understanding that religious people will pray easily. Also, other religions throughout the world, man, they'll pray at the drop of the hat. So we have to make sure that when we're using the sinner's prayer, that we are leading them in a prayer of understanding, uh, and they understand the gospel, and they're putting heart faith, saving faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, all right? And then number two, uh, the second inherent danger of using the sinner's prayer recklessly is some professing believers point to the moment that they prayed, quote, the prayer as the sole factor in their salvation. We've all probably heard someone say this. Well, well, have you been, you know, for sure you're going to heaven? Yeah, I prayed the prayer. You get this down south especially. You prayed the prayer. It's like, yeah, I checked my ticket, you know, just, I prayed the prayer. Do you remember what you said? No. Remember what you did? No. I prayed the prayer. And so we have to, again, realize that praying a prayer is not God's plan of salvation. It's praying the sinner's prayer with a heart of faith, believing in the death, burial, and resurrection, accepting Christ as, as Lord, that is the... And when I say Lord, I'm talking about the Son of God. I, I don't believe in lordship salvation. Some people say, well, if, if Jesus is not Lord of your life, then, then you're not saved. I believe the Bible very specifically talks about the moment of salvation and then the moment of surrender when Christ becomes your Lord. Uh, but when the Bible talks about Lord Jesus, uh, of course it's talking about that He is the Lord, that He is the virgin-born Son of God uh, and the Messiah. All right? So when someone says, if you're dealing with someone, they say, yeah, I prayed the prayer or I prayed a prayer, then it's always a good idea just to dig a little bit and find out what that means to them. And sometimes they'll, they'll elaborate, oh, I trusted Jesus Christ, I was eight years old, vacation Bible school, all of these things. Uh, but we need to dig to make sure they understand what they're doing. Does that make sense? All right, so the, the sinner's prayer is a powerful tool in reaching people for Jesus we just have to make sure we're using it properly, understanding what it is, and leading people in a, in a prayer of faith as a request according to the promise of Romans ten thirteen, and as a confession that they are trusting Christ as their Savior. Any questions about that? Anybody have a situation or a comment? Yes, ma'am. 
Yeah, sure. Yep, so some, some denominations, they'll pray the sinner's prayer repeatedly. Uh, and oftentimes, like I said, Catholics will pray to be saved regularly. But you've got to understand how fortunate we are to understand uh, assurance of salvation. There are entire segments of Christianity, uh, Pentecostals, Charismatics, that believe you can lose your salvation. And so some of them are sincere, wanting to be saved, and they realize that they're, they sin every day. So they're constantly praying the sinner's prayer over and over and over and over and over and over to be saved. And it's really a sad thing. Oh, you can only be born again one time. Right, you're born again. Then we ought to keep short accounts with God, praying for God to forgive the sins that come between us relationally every day. Right? Just like a good child will make sure there's nothing between them and their parent. If they talk back, if they are stubborn, I'm sorry, Mom, I'm sorry, Dad, please forgive me. That's the right thing to do. But you're still their child, Right? Uh, but some denominations believe you can lose your salvation, uh, and it's it's really a sad thing. Uh huh. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So that was your uncle. His great uncle was a Nazarene, so he'd have to go forward and get saved every week because he'd say a bad word or be unkind. And until he became a Baptist, then he realized, hey, I'm saved. i never forget, I took a, uh, I told you at the soul winning meeting, when I got uh, convicted about soul winning, I just started telling everybody about Jesus. I went to all my family members, I went to everybody. I went to one of my grandpa's, and he was a Pentecostal, but hadn't been to church in like 30 years. And um, I said I wanted to meet with him, so we went out to breakfast, and he sat across from me, make a long story short, I witnessed to him. And he pulls out a cigarette, and he lights it. He's like, yeah, that's why I worry about you Baptists. I'm like, why do you worry about us? He says, because you don't think you can lose your salvation. And a lot of you aren't going to heaven. It's like, <laughs> it's like if, if any one of us is a sinner, you know, he's sitting there smoking. He had cursed. He was running around with women. And he's worried about me. You know, I'm trying to live right and do all of that, but it's just... It's kind of like with a hyper-Calvinist. It's never their kids that are, that are chosen for destruction. You know, all of their kids are elect. It's your kids that, that are not elect. And it's like some, sometimes these Pentecostal folks or, or these other folks, they'll be like, well, you sinners over there, you know, they'll have huge sins in their life, but they're okay. But you guys over there, you know, that's your problem. And so it really causes a lot of difficulty if we don't understand the doctrine of salvation so clearly. And the sinner's prayer is so beautiful. And I can't get over Romans ten thirteen. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Seems pretty simple to me. And so the, the heart faith, the prayer of faith, confessing and requesting. And you don't get any better than that. And it nails down that moment of salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth. Pray that you'd give us a understanding of how to win people to Christ. And not, not to get caught up in the critiques of people that don't go soul winning or don't believe in soul winning. Uh, Satan has 